40 here. In most jobs, you could just follow directions. You could just follow the protocol. You can just do what you're told and you're going to be fine. But in other jobs, entrepreneurial jobs, sales jobs, you have to go way beyond a protocol. You have to go beyond the checklist. You have to go beyond general instructions to blaze your own trail. And so I think some jobs require a lot more motivation than other jobs. So I can understand why there's a tremendous demand for motivational speakers, right? And for some people, it's a it's a rational thing to seek out some kind of motivation guru, right? For, for people who have to perform at with a much higher level of motivation than your ordinary person. So for most of us, we should be able to get all the motivation we need from being part of a family, an extended family, a community, a tribe, having friends, having a profession, right? Having hobbies and being part of a community. But some people have to go above and beyond. And uh, that's where the motivational speaker comes in. And here's a terrific article in the December 11 edition of The New Yorker, How to Build a Better Motivational Speaker. The upstart motivator Jesse Itzler wants to reform his profession while also rising to the top. Now, while there are people for whom... Seeking out motivational speakers is a good decision, a rational decision, right? An adaptive decision to the challenges of life. For other people, they're just trying to fill a hole in their soul, all right? Because normally you get all the motivation you need from your family. But uh, if if that's not doing it, all right, if, if you need more, right, then it would make sense but, uh, to, to seek out a little something extra. But for, for many people, there's just something missing in their life and they listen to a Jordan Peterson or a Dennis Prager or a Tucker Carlson and uh, he, he makes them feel alive. And those people are vulnerable for some guru coming along. And uh, those people those people may not necessarily make, make the best decisions consistently. The, these people are vulnerable. Right, here's the New Yorker article. Presented by Apple News. Thanks, New Yorker. Profiles, published in the print issue of The New Yorker with the headline, Peak Performer. Jesse Itzler's Quest to be the World's Top Motivational Speaker. Written by Tad Friend. Narrated by McLeod Andrews for Apple News Plus subscribers. Please be advised, this article contains adult language. Life is a winding road. A lonely road. Tad Friend is a terrific journalist. He wrote a great piece about uh, 15 years ago on a leading publicist in Hollywood that was revelatory. So he does a lot of great work. A dark and stony road. The road less traveled. Or, hang on, uh, maybe life is a chrysalis, a labyrinth, or a box of chocolates. Whatever life is, and we have no fucking idea, really, we know that to master it, we must first liken it to something we do understand. Not so long ago, that analogizing was the work of shamans, imams, and ministers. 
Nowadays, it falls to muscular men in black jeans who prowl the stage. The motivational speakers. They know that each of us has a dream life, one that seems as distant as childhood happiness. They make getting to it a matter of discreet steps. Believe in your greatness. Envision where you want to be in a year. Find the window in every wall and urge you to start taking them. Own your future, because if you don't, someone else will, they cry. Everything you want is on the other side of yes. The first challenge motivational speakers must overcome is that motivation galvanizes people for only about 45 minutes. Right. <laughs> yeah, a great, great motivational speaker will galvanize you for a few minutes. If it's not hooked in, tied in, clued in, connected with people that you love, that you know in real life, right, as opposed to just a, a parasocial relationship, right? Best, best motivation comes from having a family, extended family, friends, and feeling part of a tribe. So you don't get to become a great motivational speaker, a la uh, an Oprah or a Tony Robbins, by telling people the truth, because there are just way too many people and institutions that already do that, right? You become special by relaying something special and few people have a special trove of important new ideas so what do you do you harness your charisma to relay ideas that sound profound all right like a dennis prager or jordan peterson right it's easy to say things that sound profound it's much more difficult to say things that are profound that my favorite motivational speakers the people who tune me up are usually 12-step speakers but they don't get written up in major publications. They don't get wealth and fame and power from their work. Uh, Bill Wilson, the founder of AA, was offered an honorary doctorate from Yale University, but he turned it down. He had to turn it down to follow the AA tradition of anonymity. Uh, 12-step programs refuse large donations. AA, for example, doesn't want money from non-alcoholics, and it won't take more than a couple of thousand dollars from you. I mean, how many other groups refuse donations? But uh, motivational speakers, right, they're happy to, to take you for hundreds, thousands, millions of dollars. The second is banality. It is hardly an esoteric secret that it's important to set clear goals, embrace opportunities, and persevere through rejection. The third is that motivational speaker smacks of quackery. Right, so most of the important things with regard to motivation and self-help have already been said and have been said on countless occasions. So the motivators now call themselves inspirational teachers or life strategists or global experts on human genius and personal transformation. By transforming their own lives, at least, America's 25,000 life coaches and growth facilitators have helped make motivation a $13 billion industry. And for some people, it's an absolutely, it's a, a rational choice to go seek out this kind of training or to tune into these kind of speakers because they, they have jobs that require extraordinary levels of, of motivation and, and to have something that's on hand that you can just tune into that gets you fired up, whether it's music or your favorite speaker or being part of you know, some kind of success group, it, it makes sense. Now, we live in a much less religious age than we did 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 200 years ago. and as decoding the gurus makes pretty clear, we live in an age of secular gurus, all right? People no longer tend to turn to their priest, minister, or rabbi for motivation and wisdom about life, right? Where, where do people now 
primarily turn to secular sources of meaning and inspiration rather than religious sources, because for many people, secular sources of meaning have more meaning than religious sources of meaning, right? The biggest reason, for example, that most Jews are not Orthodox Jews is that uh, Orthodox Judaism does not make sense to them. So for some people, their life indeed does get better when they become more religious. For other people, their life gets better when they reduce their religious commitments. So people are seeking something that works, and I'm sure for some people, these motivational speakers work for them. Right? There, there's no parenting style that produces consistent results. All right? You can read about that in the terrific book by Judith Rich Harris, uh, The Nurture Assumption. Right? And so there's no one program for living that consistently beats the pants off all other alternatives. So in some situations, following the old ways works best. Some situations, doing what your community says works best. In other situations, doing something new and unique works better, right? There are jobs that require far more motivation than other jobs, right? Most jobs just need to follow direction. So selling a vision, right? Selling a dream. That, uh, that's what these, these gurus do. And I'm sure it works for some people, doesn't work for others, and is devastating for many people, right? You can make a great deal of money from selling nonsense to vulnerable people. Right? Think about who are the highest paid, most successful motivational speakers. Right? They're people like Tony Robbins and Oprah. Now, if the highest paid and most successful members of this profession were admirable, I'd, I'd likely change my mind about this profession. So Tony Robbins, in 1984, he married, according to Wikipedia, he married Rebecca Jenkins after meeting her at a seminar. I presume it was one of his seminars. Jenkins had three children from two former marriages whom Tony Robbins adopted. Uh, that marriage lasted for 14 years. Uh, at the same time, 1984, Robbins fathered a child with a former girlfriend. Their son, Jairic Robbins, is also a personal empowerment coach and trainer. Uh, Robbins was a vegan for 12 years. He then added fish to his diet. And while eating a fish-heavy diet, he developed mercury poisoning and nearly died. Right? And this is a guy who you know, tells tens of thousands of people what to eat and how to live. I mean, he, he, he promotes diet, how, how to make money. How, he's, got, he's got something for everyone. His diet now mostly consists of vegetables with a small amount of uh, animal protein. Right, back to this New Yorker article. One evening in June, 260 people gathered in a ski lodge at the foot of Bald Mountain in Sun Valley, Idaho. They had paid almost $5,000 to summit Mount Everest, by analogy. At 6 o'clock the next morning, they would climb Baldy, take the chairlift down, and repeat until, after 15 ascents, they'd climbed 29,029 vertical feet, the elevation of Everest. A company called 29029 Everesting has organized the event and staffed it with inspiring coaches. A former Olympian who had recently completed seven marathons in seven days on seven continents. I know men in particular love these, these big challenges. And I think much of it is the search for a magic key, right? If uh, climbing Mount Everest was, was the magic key to a successful life, to a life filled with, with self-esteem, then... Uh, then you know, a lot of people would want to do it, but there's no magic key, right? For every person who attempts some extraordinary physical challenge, right? There's, there's probably somebody who would have been better off doing 
smaller, less dramatic steps, right? The way to develop a good feeling about yourself, to develop a good reputation with yourself is to take the, the small necessary steps that you should take every day, right? Do, do the right thing consistently. Right? There's no magic physical challenge that is going to rocket you into a new dimension. There's no magic key to life, right? Believing in God for, for most people is not going to be a magic key to transforming their life. Uh, running a marathon is not going to be a magic key. But I think men in particular think, ah, if I could just complete this triathlon, if I can just run this marathon, if I can just summit Mount Everest, it's so much easier to take on a big dramatic task that you can then uh, boast about to people or that you can tell yourself, hey, you know, I accomplished that. You know, I can feel great about myself as opposed to, say, doing undramatic things that your wife wants you to do or that your kids want you to do or that your boss wants you to do. Just a small undramatic paying attention to certain details right being being alive to how you affect other people right uh that's not nearly as dramatic right but it's a sustainable way of life that uh will will usually be much more effective than these big dramatic uh, physical challenges a triathlete known for competing with his brother who has cerebral palsy strapped to him but the keynote speaker was a 55-year-old, self-described back-of-the-pack triathlete named Jesse Itzler. Itzler, who co-founded 29029 Eversting, is rangy and puckish, and he appears to have plucked his outfits from a college student's laundry basket. His resume is all hairpin turns. A former rapper, he wrote the earworm New York Knicks theme song, managed Run DMC, and launched five successful companies, including a private plane rental service, before becoming a part owner of the Atlanta Hawks. Having found his métier and motivations... So I'm sure this guy is absolutely extraordinary. And it, I think it would, it would be inspiring and motivating to be in his presence. I think you'd learn a lot about being around him. I, I'm sure he helps many people. But uh, extraordinary people do extraordinary things. Ordinary people rarely have the capability of doing the extraordinary things that uh, this guy does. And the idea that he can sell you a program that would enable you to perform at the level he does is a delusion. Seven years ago, Itzler is determined to become its leading practitioner. He believes that what we really want is to feel proud of ourselves. His chief method for instilling pride is to set physical challenges so difficult that you must discover something new within yourself to meet them. As Itzler held the mic in a 90s rapper crouch, many in the audience seemed apprehensive about climbing the mountain that loomed outside. After ascertaining by a show of hands that half of those present had never even run a 5K, Itzler began with a story of overcoming. Overcoming is a staple of motivational speaking. I'm an ordinary person like you who overcame cancer, homelessness, getting bitten by a radioactive spider, and achieved extraordinary results. Itzler said that his oldest son, Laser, suffered from such severe anxiety. And another thing that you'll notice with many motivational speakers and live streamers and people who put out uh, content for a living is that they mine their own lives for anecdotes, all right? And uh, this could be good, this could be bad, this could be exhausting. It's not a winning formula for most people, all right? Uh, mining your own life, it feels a little bit like selling your soul, I I'm sure. It's a useful and a good thing for a minority of people, but as a general life strategy, uh, 
not a good idea to make yourself unnecessarily vulnerable, right? Jerry Isler is a phenomenal, successful, you know, strong person who can probably deal with the downside of, of being so vulnerable publicly in a way that most people are not equipped to, to handle. So you should be able to get all the motivation you need from your family, your community, your friends, your profession, your hobbies, your religion. This normal life is not available to you. There's probably something wrong that is unlikely to be fixed by motivational speakers. Now, on the other hand, most of us can use a pep talk now and again. So people like Jerry Itzler and John Peterson, Dennis Prager meet legitimate needs. Right? Jordan Peterson, I'm sure, has helped thousands of people. I think he's probably also hurt thousands of people. Some people can consume this genre of self-help and motivational speaking with, with great benefit. Others, moderate benefit. Other people, no benefit. Other people, it will be to their detriment. All right? They'll spend so much money and so much time, and they'll believe the BS that uh, they will lose touch with reality. And uh, they'll go thousands and tens of thousands of dollars into debt. So there's no one-size-fits-all type of uh, self-help or advice, right? It all depends on the person and the situation he's in. Advice that can be generally given is already widely available for free. ...about going to a new school that he wouldn't get out of the car on the first day. I said to Sarah, his wife, Sarah Blakely, who founded the shapewear company Spanx, he just has to make one friend. Itzler didn't recount the experience so much as relive it. Pacing, doing the voices, his hand to his ear for the call with the principal. Now, some people just have insatiable drive for accomplishment. And uh, these are usually not the happiest people. And sometimes their insatiable drive for accomplishment you know, does lead to great developments for humanity. It's a good thing that some people have this insatiable drive. Uh, for other people, they ruin the lives of people around them, right, and uh, for no good end. So if you look at the life of uh, Theodore Herzl, the founder of modern Zionism, right, everyone in his family, everyone close to him, their, their life was wrecked by his you know, very one-track devotion to Zionism. I, my father was an extraordinarily driven man. He was not a happy man, right? Uh, I just noticed from my own firsthand experience, many people with this insatiable drive for accomplishment and not happy and unhappy people are dangerous, right? Sometimes unhappy people can channel their, their drives in, in a socially productive way, but usually they, they're not in touch with reality and we all tend to want to reproduce an, ourselves and reproduce an environment that is best suited for us. So my father, for example, his favorite speaking opportunity was at funerals because that's when people were taking his words most seriously. My father did not particularly enjoy interacting with 99.9% .9 of people unless he could instruct them, unless they were willing to take instruction from him, direction from him, you know, listen to his advice, then he just felt uh, uncomfortable around people. All right, but my father was a very unhappy man and he channeled his unhappiness into a life of, of great accomplishment in his world of evangelical Christianity. And I'm sure he helped many people and hurt many people. Uh, but I, I know what it's like to grow up around someone who's incredibly driven. Right? It, it doesn't make for a great family life. ...who told him that Laser wanted to come home early. Itzler demurred, 
not wanting his son to take the easy way out, but said he'd be first in line to pick him up after school. The parents in the audience were listening intently. The principal called back at 2 p.m. Mr. Itzler, your son wanted me to tell you that he'll take the bus home today. I said, what happened? Itzler made eye contact around the room. He said, he made a friend. As many in the crowd took a breath, seeming surprised by their emotion, Itzler pivoted to the immediate challenge. Tomorrow, on the mountain, I guarantee there will be a moment when you can say something to someone else that will get them to the top. Yeah, that that's true. We, we can say things that can have a profound effect on people. I remember working a job that was just brutal landscaping. And then on, on the fourth day of the job, I met someone who just paid a little bit of personal attention to me, noted I was from Australia, introduced me to his daughter, just like a couple of minutes of chit chat with him. And it fired me up. It made me feel like a human being. When I was working in construction and covered in dirt and grime and sweat, right? I didn't feel fully human, particularly when I was working construction around college students and for a semester, I largely dropped out of college. I just took a couple of night classes to keep working landscaping. And I was like the help. I was just invisible to people. I wasn't really human. And so in this kind of brutal atmosphere, that those few people who noticed my humanity, it had a big effect on me. I'll never forget the one professional athlete who asked me my name. I've interviewed dozens of professional athletes but only one of them bothered to ask me my name. That was Steve Young, former quarterback for the San Francisco 49ers and someone with a strong Mormon heritage. And he took the time to ask me my name. He was interested in my name. Like, so we, we have an ability to pay a little bit of attention to other people and significantly you know, improve their day and improve their lives. I mean, I still remember some of these moments uh, 40 years later. Now, just imagine telling all these stories about your family, all right? And uh, Jerry Isla says he gets permission from his kid, and uh, and and maybe maybe his kids, you know, at age 10, 11, right? Maybe they they have the the wisdom to decide whether or not they want to become public figures that their that their dad uses to make his points and to sell his information products, or maybe they don't. It's not clear. I mean, Jerry Isla does sound extraordinary. Started, sold five businesses, right? We do need to feel proud of ourselves. Uh, it's not just physical challenges, though, right? We can set ourselves communal challenges. You can volunteer in your synagogue or your church or for a charity. You can set yourself professional challenges. You can get more education. You can set yourself mental challenges to read a certain number of books, psychological, spiritual challenges, moral challenges. Right? Meeting any challenge enhances your reputation with yourself meeting the challenges from the people who are important to you. For me, that's the greatest source of energy is to, to please in, in a positive way, not selling myself out, but to, to be helpful and to meet up with the positive expectations of people who are important to me. But there, there's no shortcut to achieving secure attachment, right? Most people have secure attachment. They like themselves. They like to spend time with people who like them, and they like to minimize time with people who hurt you. But uh, no matter what program you follow, you're not likely to achieve extraordinary results. The word extraordinary means unusual. It means remarkable, right? If everyone achieved the remarkable and the unusual and the extraordinary, the word extraordinary would have no meaning. So telling people that they can achieve extraordinary results by following your program and setting themselves these daunting physical challenges, that's a con game. 
I'm sure it's a positive con game for some people and uh, not so positive for others and neutral for others. It was said about F. Matthias Alexander, the developer of the Alexander Technique, that he was the he was the con man who really had something valuable to impart. He had many of the characteristics of the con man, but he, he truly had an important technique to impart. So sometimes a con can work wonders for you, right? It's not like uh, telling yourself the truth is always the best way to go, right? We tend to walk around with an exaggerated sense of our own importance. And if we didn't, we'd probably be crushed by our own insignificance. Uh, most men like to build up an importance to their work that probably isn't really there. And that can be adaptive. Looking at the chat, either you have an insatiable desire for accomplishment or not. Man will often receive greater accolades for that which he does outside of his home and family. Hence, many will focus outward even at the expense of his own family. Right, but I think the approximately two-thirds of the population that uh, is securely attached, they will naturally want good relations with their family and they'll put a high premium on that because your family will be the people who you generally will see the most, spend the most time with. I guarantee that you can be a friend to one person, and you'll feel better about yourself. Having turned a room full of... That's true, right? If, if you pick, someone, pick up someone else's day, improve someone else's life, you help someone else out, you, you will feel better about yourself. Now, you can go too far with that. I, I don't know about you, but I find it an intoxicating high to rescue someone. It just, just feels amazing. It just makes me feel so powerful. It makes me feel like God, that I can just transform someone's life. I remember I met this woman who was living out of her car and sleeping in the in her office at the Los Angeles Press Club and sleeping on the couch at her sister's place. And you know, I picked her up, cleaned her up, you know, took her out to dinner, you know, moved her in with me and it felt extraordinary. Also, much of my life I have yearned for someone to come along and rescue me from my own dysfunction, from my own ill health, from my own, you know, self defeating habits. And this desire to rescue and the desire to rescue basically comes out of the same sick place. But there is an appropriate place for, for helping people without enabling people. I, I find the 12-step program Al-Anon was very helpful in that way. One piece of advice I've never forgotten from Al-Anon is don't make an unsolicited suggestion to someone more than once, right? So if you think they should join a certain gym, right, by all means, make that suggestion once, but then let it go. You think they should read a particular book, Mention it once, let it go. Or at least it's better to mention it three times than to mention it 30 times. So I, I don't fully live up to this maxim, but it's really helped me. Because like my father, I kind of get a charge out of trying to change people around me. And it's not necessarily the healthiest charge. Strangers into a community, he then gave them a common enemy. Itzler is a fervent believer in competition. After a recent colonoscopy, he asked the doctor... Do I have the cleanest colon of anyone you've ever done? Right. So leading this sort of highly competitive life, I'm sure it's a good thing for some people. Uh, for most people, it's not a winning strategy. It's exhausting to be around such people. Right? There's a time and a place for competition. I love competition, but I would not want to be competing with people close to me all the time, or I wouldn't want to be around someone who is so hyper-competitive. It'd be absolutely exhausting. So there's a time for competition of a striving and there's a time for chilling and taking it easy. There's a time and a place for almost everything under the sun.
An opponent much larger than Bald Mountain was in view, he said. Time is undefeated. The only way you can have a fist fight with time is to do things you've always wanted to do. Do something that lasts forever. He thrust his right arm high, and the crowd rose. Tomorrow, he promised, we are going to take this fist and shove it right up time's ass. Pandemonium. In the morning, I climbed the mountain with Itzler. Beforehand, he'd seemed uncertain that his talk was durably inspirational. Was it life-changing or just moment-impacting, he wondered. But as we made our way up what some hikers were calling the Wall, a section that rises 1,100 feet in seven-tenths of a mile, his brio returned. Everyone else is opening their email at work right now, and we're cruising up a mountain, he said. I couldn't even grunt back. Three-quarters of the hikers would finish all 15 laps. So there's nothing inherently superior about climbing a mountain as opposed to answering email at work. So the stock in trade for gurus and for motivational speakers is you know, pseudo-profound BS, this is what the blokes at uh, Decoding the Gurus call it, and I think they're exactly right. So guru engages in pseudo-profound BS. This is their core business. They're, they're stuck in trade, right? You're not putting a fist in, in time. You're not defeating time by climbing a mountain. So gurus are most comfortable in the role of the armchair opinionator, the wise man graciously offering their advice to eager seekers of wisdom. Most of the other techniques and maneuvers discussed here function primarily to support and justify this most favored activity. So isn't that what I'm doing? Well, what I try to do is optimize for truth, right? I try to cut through the BS and it's not nearly as exciting as, uh, you know, pushing the, the pseudo profound BS it's not nearly as exciting as telling partisans what they want to hear. It's uh, often mundane. It's, it changes. Situations change. Right? It's not revolutionary. So many gurus will talk about their evolutionary, revolutionary theories and their galaxy brains. That's the content of their discourse. But pseudo-profound BS describes the form of their discourse. It's typified by language that is cognitively easy to process. Right? The things that Jerry Isler says is cognitively easy to process. It superficially appears to be something profound. Same for, for Dennis Prager. Uh, but upon analysis, much of the time it just turns out to be trite, meaningless, contradictory, or tautological. All right, so th these guru teachings tend to be very similar to the inspirational quote memes. They're often blandly positive messages of saccharine self-affirmation. But it is the logical and semantic structure, not the content, that is the core property of pseudo-profound BS. Modern secular gurus do not necessarily provide self-help. And their pseudo-profound BS, literally peppered with abstract and abstruse references, can be on any secular topic, such as science, health, politics, society, culture, etc. So many things sound amazing and feel amazing, such as, I'm, I'm right-wing, I'm a conservative, when Dennis Prager says, the bigger the government, the smaller the citizen, that sounds amazing. It's only when I examine that utterance that I realize, oh, that's kind of disappointing. There's no, there's no reality to it. There's no substance to it. Adam Organ, a 47-year-old with a biblical beard, wasn't among them. 
His climb was meant to crown a season of self-transformation. Pushing 300 pounds during the pandemic, he had grown worried that he wouldn't make it to his daughter's college graduation, so he got a peloton and sought out sources of uplift. On Bald Mountain, he sprained his knee on his seventh ascent. It was like I'm on the Apollo 13 and failure is not an option, he told me. So I one leg climbed to the top of the wall, and then I cheered other people on. I was crying a lot, but I was so glad I was there. A few weeks later, Oregon dropped out of another 29029 climb with altitude sickness. Undeterred, he emailed me, I continue to come back to Jesse's comment that if a goal doesn't scare you, then it's not big enough. Now, it's entirely possible that Jerry Itzler knows more about life than the thousands of years of the Jewish tradition or the 2,000 years of Christianity, right? But I, I'm skeptical. I mean, the guy does seem extraordinary. I'm sure he has many insights that your priest, pastor, or rabbi do not have. Would not surprise me if he could indeed build a $100 million business selling his program to vulnerable people. If his program consistently provides more value than cost to most people who buy it, that would pleasantly surprise me. Right? Motivation is uh, not easy to scale. Right? Motivation is not easy to impart to people in a lasting way. That mindset is changing how I view my life. Itzler told me, what I'm really doing is providing people with a foundation for how to live. I could definitely make this a $100 million business because the category has exploded and there's such huge need. So he's providing our foundation for how to live, right? This is what secular gurus and uh, motivational speakers do. They, they lay a tapestry of meaning over life, over the universe. And uh, it can feel good. Like if, if your life's not working, right, if you're not connecting with people, if you're not achieving the things that you want to achieve, if you're frustrated, unhappy, depressed, all right, someone who can come along and offer you these kind of answers is going to be immediately appealing. Much of the time, however, this is a con game. It just doesn't work, and what they're selling you is pseudo-profound nonsense. And the Autistic Merit points out, yeah, if you want to have an effect on people, it's rarely effective to say, hey, you should do this. Right? In my experience, that never works. Instead, just share with people the things that you've experienced that have helped you. So I started on Adderall a few weeks ago. That dramatically improved my life i know because i'm now on my fifth day without adderall and i noticed my brain skipping like an old record player because I, I lost half of my adderall pills while i was on adderall i wasn't able to maintain enough focus to keep keep my stash but at least i had two weeks of the benefit of adderall and so i've been sharing it with some people and finding out yeah that many of them too got diagnosed with ADHD as adults and found that it dramatically improved my life. Another thing I noticed, the people who most vehemently warned me against Adderall were taking it without doctor's prescription, without medical advice. They were just using it on their own as they saw fit to try to you know, get some work done and uh, didn't, didn't seem to work out very well for them. And yeah, it's interesting how, how we get so much energy out of trying to change people. So I suspect if you've had a bad experience with Adderall, you would feel an incentive to try to warn people. And on the one hand, you could be doing good. And on another hand, you're just feeding your ego that you see through the BS, man. Yeah, millions of people 
from objective measures seem to be getting great benefit from taking ADHD medication, but you see through the BS because even though you weren't diagnosed with ADHD and you didn't take it with a doctor's prescription and you abused directions, uh, you know better than the normal person about such medication. And so often we get, you know, way too much of our ego involved in trying to change people. We, we get a high from it. Yet motivation, like intimacy, is hard to scale. It works best in high school locker rooms, less well in arenas, and rarely or barely on Instagram. Itzler intends to grow with his clients, yet he worries that reaching the summit in his field might prove incompatible with becoming his best self. This space is filled with a lot of people regurgitating what other people have been saying for years. A lot of pre So, looking at the screen right now, I'm playing some coverage from Fox News, Harvard presidents remain in office amid outcry. And uh, this is not a woman who got the job on merit, right? She's a black woman. That's why she got the job. She does not have a distinguished scholarly history. All right, she is being quite shoddy in her publications. She's not someone who promotes uh, good scholarship. She would know good scholarship if it smacked her in, in the face. And uh, she does know how to play the game. All right, and so do these motivational speakers, and so do most working pundits. They know how to play the game by telling people what they want to hear by aligning themselves with what is popular and what's effective and optimizing for other things aside from truth, right? You want to become a successful live streamer, motivational speaker, pundit, all right? It will be a lot easier to do that if you optimize for things other than truth. Predatory marketing, a lot of snake oil, he said. Everybody says they're not in it for the money, but everybody's in it for the money. The American experiment has always been defined by the person. So out of all the motivations, I think uh, being in motivational speaking for the money is probably about the healthiest or being motivated by money is probably about the healthiest because if you earn your money in a legal way, in an upstanding way that you wouldn't be embarrassed if other people knew about, right, it means that you're meeting other people's needs. And the more needs you meet, the more profound the needs you meet, the more money you'll make. So I think being motivated by money while doing things in a legal and upstanding way, I think that's an excellent motivation, right? You'll, you'll work harder, you'll work more effectively, you'll be more likely to meet other people's needs, you'll be of benefit to people around you and to the world, right? It's, it's a great motivation. Pursuit of happiness. The accompanying caveat was that the pursuit wouldn't be much fun. First, row across the icy Delaware River. Next, endure a Valley Forge winter without shoes, etc. As Benjamin Franklin reminded the readers of Poor Richard's Almanac, there are no gains without pains. In suffering we trust. Yet we also venerate the Roomba and no-need bread, the labor-saving hack. Wouldn't transformation be easier without all the hardship? In The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, Stephen R. Covey observed that by the 80s, America had shifted from the character ethic of Franklin-esque hard work to the personality ethic, defined by quick-fix influence techniques, power strategies, communication skills, and positive attitudes. So I'm not sure the American experiment is primarily being about the pursuit of happiness. I mean, that's in the Declaration of Independence, but I think for Americans, as it is for almost everyone, 
their their motivation is for themselves and for their posterity. And I'm quoting exactly from the preamble to the U.S. Constitution. Right? That's the normal source of motivation for ourselves, for our family, for our posterity, for our community, for our tribe. Self-help books helped lower the bar. All you need is what you learned in kindergarten and a little chicken soup for the soul. These days, it's enough just to absorb a TED Talk. Say, Sean Acor's proposition that it's not that hard work and success make you happy, it's that happiness make you hardworking and successful. Self-help itself recently got an upgrade to... Wow, that's, I think that's an interesting thought. It's not that hard work makes you happy. Being happy leads you to work hard and effective. Well, I think happy people are just much more effective in life. I mean, that's, that's what I notice. So I, I'm sure they both, they both affect each other. If you work effectively and hard and ethically, right, you will have more self-respect and you will be happier. But when you're happy, you're naturally inclined towards being helpful to other people. When you're unhappy, your unhappiness just takes up so much space in your head and your soul and your psyche and in your body, right? It, it, when people are unhappy, it shows in unnecessary tension and compression in their body. And this kind of blinds us to other people and what they need. When you feel good and when you've got upward direction in your body, your neck is free, your head's releasing forward and up, there's a nice width across your chest, your back is lengthening and widening, right? And you're moving through life in a joyful way, Right, I very rarely have any physical pain. Right, I very rarely have neck pain or back pain or foot pain or knee pain or I just very rarely have pain. I don't have uh, dental pain, tooth pain, eye strain. I very rarely have any pain. So that makes me much more available, much more open to what's going on with other people. Right, I have more room to process what's going on with other people, and I have more inclination to be helpful to other people because I'm not being restrained, held down, you know, restricted by you know, layers of unnecessary tension, layers of you know, self-recrimination, uh, layers of, of misery, right? That, that washes over me at times. But to the extent that I feel free and easy as I move through life, as I you know, walk through the door gracefully, when I sit down gracefully, when I get up gracefully, when I speak gracefully, when I type gracefully, when I conduct myself in a graceful and easy manner, right? what I'm doing is going to be much easier for me and therefore much more likely to be pleasurable. And so I'm going to have a happy song kind of playing in my heart, if not directly on my lips. And then when you're happy, you kind of look around and you have more room to notice what's going on for other people. And it then makes you happy to be helpful to other people. So, yeah, I'm sure hard work and happiness both feed on each other. Personal development. It's no longer the remedial training you undergo to quit smoking, but a personal brand refresh to catapult you into the C-suite. Every weekend around the country, conferences attract aspirants eager to flip houses or sell solar panels or just get rich in some unspecified way. Right. So if you're selling houses or you're doing you know, real estate investing and you want to be an executive, you want to be a leader at a company, it would make sense that you would need a lot more motivation than your ordinary Joe who just does what he's told. 
So for, for many people, I'm sure it is adaptive, it's rational, it makes sense for them to consume this motivational content. The conference goers, mostly in their 30s and 40s, have the air of commuters who missed the first train to the city and are determined to crowd onto the next one. They seek trade secrets and, better still, the mindset to deploy them. Kent Clothier, who runs a conference called Scale and Escape, told me, Whatever you're doing, real estate or marketing or athletics, personal development is the foundation. Sure, but uh, personal development primarily comes from our relationships with other people. We're not primarily individuals. So you will have much more personal development if you can sustain relationships with others, if you have a valued part of your community, if you're a valued part of your workspace, if you get along with members of your family. Right? That's the normal, natural, healthy way to get personal development. And then for some people, getting you know, more personal development on top of that, depending on your interests and goals and aims, yeah, that makes sense. But uh, the primary source of personal development is not you know, some speaker who you don't know. It's not self-help books. It's your father, your brother, your sister, your uncle and aunts, and your nieces, your friends, the people you know at synagogue and church. Now, if you're broken and so you're seeking to fill that hole in your soul by consuming this self-help material, right, that self-help work is then going to be developing upon a rickety foundation. It's going to be developing upon a foundation where you've got a hole in your soul and you're unlikely to see things clearly. Right? We see things much more clearly, for example, when we have an appropriate level of gratitude. But if we're coming at it from this, this great place of need, then we're going to be much more vulnerable to scams, right? There are many paths to, to meaning in life, but most of us get all we need from family, friends, work, and, and community. So one of the great things about the Alexander Technique is that it is a technique of subtraction. So most self-development, most self-help programs you know, built upon what's already there. They just keep adding layer and la layer and layer and layer and layer. Alexander Technique, works by subtraction. It's a way of noticing how you respond to stimuli and start restricting, deleting, minimizing those reactions to stimuli that don't serve you. So for example, a very common reaction to stimuli such as a loud noise going off is to hunch the shoulders and to rotate the head back onto the neck and to send the head forward, just distorting your musculature, putting a lot more pressure on your back, putting strain on your voice, right? So these instinctive Reactions, walking around in, in fight or flight, as, as many people do. They just kind of walk around with their head kind of jutting forward. And that puts a lot of strain on the body. And these, these stuck physical responses of excess tension, all right, they then multiply throughout your life so that you just are less free, less graceful, less open to possibilities to, to change, to noticing what's going on with other people because you're so hunched around your own narrow perspective. And you'll feel this viscerally. When you fix on something, when I look out and I fix on something, if I just look at a, a particular tree branch, my body will naturally incline towards that, that thing that I'm fixed on. You just look at one spot on your computer screen, you'll notice your shoulders and your head, neck, back relationship will all start to contort itself around that thing that you focus on. If I pick up my phone, Here's my phone. Most people, they will hunch down and compress around their phone. And so that, that's kind of the, the, a problem with goals, all right? We tend to narrow around a particular goal. 
so that we become less open to other possibilities and we become tempted to make uh, shortcuts to achieve that goal and then feel, ah, yeah, I'm making progress in my life. And really, you've done more damage to yourself in achieving this very narrow goal and you have blocked yourself from all sorts of other positive uh, possibilities because you're so fixated on that one particular goal. So yeah, I think setting goals is, is better than, than nothing, but it's not great right? For, for those two reasons. And so when you pick up your phone, instead of hunching down around your phone, right, you can lift your phone or your iPad, right? You can lift it up to your eye level so that you don't hunch around it. And when you set yourself a goal or when you start fixing on something, take uh, periodic breaks to remind yourself to come out of that fixation. And uh, one way of doing that is noticing both sides of the room simultaneously. So right now I'm speaking to you and seeing both sides of the room simultaneously and everything in front of it. And as I do that, I start to go up a little bit. I start to get a little bit more width across my chest, across my shoulders, because I'm broadening my vision. I now have soft eyes. Instead of just fixing on one particular thing, I've opened up my perspective. And when I open up my perspective, it has an effect on my breathing, on my voice, on my posture, on how I I use myself. I'll be much more graceful and useful and effective as I go through life with this attitude of awareness rather than the attitude of judgment. Now, there's a time and a place for judgment. There are times when we absolutely have to focus on one thing, all right? But most of the time, we're better off in this attitude of awareness, having soft eyes, taking in as much of the world and of reality around us, taking in as much of what we hear and see instead of just imposing particular judgments. Time and a place for judgment, time and a place for focus. Generally speaking, we're better off with this much broader perspective. And it'll be this broader, wider longer, you know, more free perspective that will have you know, a positive effect on our body, on our thinking, on our emotions, and on our overall effectiveness. In July, 900 seekers descended on the Resorts World Hotel in Las Vegas for a real estate conference called The Forward Event, where they were bombarded with messages like, if you want to increase your net worth, you have to increase your self-worth. Dan Fleischman, one of the speakers, sat down with me to explain the business model. Skinny and spectral, he made millions from such diverse enterprises as hoodies, baseball cards, and energy drinks. He now has a popular podcast, The Money Mondays, and hosts empowerment conferences such as Limitless Arena. Fleischman described a pyramid of access, in which you upsell adherents and then sell them back down, keeping them continually engaged. Start by selling something cheap, a paid newsletter, weekly coaching on Zoom, he said. Once you have their credit card, they're in the funnel. Then you invite them to your conference and upsell into the VIP and super VIP tickets. People pay to be closer to the source of inspiration. A backstage pass might cost $10,000. A mastermind program, group coaching sessions led by the motivator, often in an exotic locale, could be 25000 more. And you're selling frequently to vulnerable people. Now, some people do this out of rational, self-interested reasons because they need such extraordinary motivation. But most people, I would suspect, who you know, start buying these products uh, are coming from a broken place trying to fill a hole in their soul, which would be better met you know, elsewhere through, say, free programs such as 12-step work or, and anything they can do to develop you know, healthy relationships with people around them. Let's look at the chat. Can't skip meds if you're going to do them. The effect will be cumulative over an extended period. Yes, I wish I hadn't lost half of my 
Adderall prescription. To what extent are these incidents on American college campuses conflations of anti-Semitism with criticism and protest, even if excessively confrontational against the Zionist state? I, I agree. Right. To, to the best of my knowledge, no one's, no one's going out on American college campuses and saying death to the Jews. Right? They've, they're, they're making arguments for Palestine. They're making arguments against Israel. It's not like they're going out there saying death to Jews. And to the best of my knowledge, I'm not even aware of a single Jew being beaten up on a college campus in the last couple of months. Right? Let, let, I'm not aware of anyone, any Jews being killed on college campuses because of the Israel-Hamas conflict. And uh, see, Saylor makes makes a great point here about the president of Penn University of Pennsylvania being forced out. Makes a good point about political speech. Right, most political opinion fundamentally is a call for the use of force or the threat to use force. Right, government relies on armed men enforcing the will of the government. So, first amended protected expressions of political opinion will usually be cause for potential violence against somebody. So cause for less Israeli retributive violence against Gazans and Hamas, right, can be interpreted accurately as being cause for more impunity for Hamas violence, right? If you say that Israel is being overdoing its response to the massacre in southern Israel, you're saying essentially that uh, that Hamas atrocity should have more impunity. If you denounce Hamas's October 7 massacre in southern Israel, that can also be seen accurately as setting the stage for mass bombings of Gaza and ethnic cleansing, if not slaughter of Gazans. So whatever position you take there, and those are the two major positions, you are endorsing the use of violence. There's, there's no way around it. As Clothier told me, those who keep paying to get to the next level are trying to compress time and go faster, the same way people pay more to get to the front of the line at Disney World. Top speakers on the conference circuit make between fifty dollars and $100,000 for a talk, with a handful nearer to $400,000. Oprah, who's on her own planet, charges a minimum of a million. Nearly all motivators espouse taking risks, serving others, and being grateful. But the most successful offer ready-made fixes for impediments to change. The fear of failure or embarrassment. The inexorable claims of inertia. Fleischman told me, People want to learn how to do everything, which is why they come to these conferences. Only it turns out they don't want to do anything. That's why so many pitches from the stage are done for you. We'll build your website or run your SEO. He shrugged. If you put a dog in the backyard, it just starts digging holes unless you give it a purpose. Okay, let's get back to the chat. Jan says, Look, have you looked into Patrick Bet David when it comes to motivational speaking and multi-level marketing? Seems to have avoided the scrutiny most other MLL founders have gotten. Uh, it just makes me uncomfortable <laughs> when, I, when I hear him speak. I, I just start feeling uncomfortable, so I haven't looked into him. But I'm sure that he is as richly deserving of scrutiny as his peers. Statistic Merit notes many of the ads I see on YouTube seem quite predatory. The snake oil scams. Yeah. So Google, YouTube, most people who sell advertising 
are not particularly choosy about who they allow to advertise. I mean, particularly, I mean, right-wing media is just overrun with predatory nonsense advertising. I mean, the the quality of the the companies that advertise on right-wing talk radio and on, on Fox News just seem highly, highly dubious. I mean, the the money that, that funds the conservative information market, the conservative uh, intellectual market, uh, much of conservative politics seems to essentially come from scammers or highly dubious uh, supplement companies. That says, I read that all these motivational groups and gurus all do the same scheme or scan that's derived from a guy who came up with it decades ago. They just change up some language. I don't think it's quite as simple as that. They, they do have different schemes. They do have different programs. And I believe that many of these schemes and programs are effective for, for some people. That I think many people absolutely get their money's worth from buying these programs. But for other people, not so much. So it depends on the individuals. But uh, did, did, I think, a, a long stream or two on the predatory nature of the funding for much of uh, right-wing media. I'll see if I can find a link to that. We try to give people a purpose. There is a noticeable gap between the values that many speakers profess and the images that stud their introductory walk-on videos. Lamborghinis, mansions, cascading Benjamins. Brad Lee, who spoke at the Forward event, said, There are a lot of goons who tell you to do good, and as soon as they walk off stage, they're doing lines of coke and banging hookers. Grant Cardone, a former motivational speaker, told me that he gave it up when he finally faced the truth. He'd been a fraud. The most successful people not only don't need motivation, they don't want it, he said. They want aspiration. Cardone now runs the well-known 10X Growth Conference, whose promotional materials showcase his Gulfstream jet and his Rolls-Royce. That whole thing of, I own nothing but I'm happy, that's 1,000% because those people couldn't make the money, he said. Happy was their second choice. In an improvised green room near the conference room stage at the Virgin Hotel in Nashville, Jesse Itzler blasted Phil Collins's In the Air Tonight and strode around, silently rehearsing. He was about to speak to the sales team at Mozark Medical, which, as he'd just learned, makes dialysis machines and catheters. Big fan of your energy, a Mozark manager told him. Hopefully you can make these guys run through a wall. Itzler bobbed and grinned, knowing he was being paid $55,000 to electrify the audience in a corporation-specific way. So I don't think corporations are doing this out of delusion, right? If you're a salesman, right, your, your job is more demanding in many ways than if you just follow, follow the rules. So I think it's entirely possible that uh, Jerry Isler can convey some ideas, some stories that will give people more energy to go out there and do the things that they, they need to do to be successful. Not so much follow your dream as stay the course. He told me, I've been told beforehand, make sure people don't quit. After being introduced, Itzler came on to the beat of Rapper's Delight, laid in by his onstage DJ, D. Wiz. Itzler hired Wiz two years ago to intensify his messages, and they rehearsed for weeks down to the word. I hate introductions, Itzler began. 
He explained that back in 1991, when he was a rapper known as Jesse James, he was booed so thunderously after being... So, yeah, many of these people are trying to sell people a system of getting rich by doing very little work, all right? The, the four-hour work week, all right? That's, that's a con, right? If Oprah and Tony Robbins are number one in your field, then your field is not optimized for truth. Right? By contrast, 12-step uh, groups say pretty much every... 12-step group. It works if you work it, and conversely, it doesn't work if you don't work it. There's no 12-step recovery without day-in, day-out work. And, I mean, think about all these stories, these intimate stories he's telling about his, his family, right? Works for some people, not a good formula for most people, right? For most people, it won't create a life that works, meaning a life where you consistently look forward to your day ahead if you're retailing all these highly intimate stories about you know, your, your family. And this large group awareness training that's going on here is also dangerous, right? For many people have uh, psychic you know, breakdowns, right? It's essentially a premeditated, premeditated attack on the self, right? And some people benefit from a premeditated attack on the self, but it's dangerous, right? Many participants often experience a heightened sense of well-being as a consequence of large group awareness training, but uh, the phenomenon is essentially pathological, meaning the training systematically undermines ego functioning, meaning individuals' ability to make judgments for themselves, and promotes regression. And uh, yeah, often you'll find people having these psychotic episodes. So large group awareness training, such as what Tony Robbins does and almost all these large motivational speakers do. Uh, good for some people, very dangerous for others. Being announced at a benefit concert that he tossed a few T-shirts into the crowd to win them over. And then I said, thank you very much, salt and Peppa is next, and I got the fuck out of there. D. Wiz played a snippet of salt and Peppa's Push It, and the audience laughed and relaxed. Some speakers build an argument from PowerPoints. Itzler works like a comedian assembling short bits into a routine. He suggests that you take a few minutes a day to send three texts or DMs to people who inspire you, planting a thousand seeds a year from which relationships can bloom. That you compliment, congratulate, and console those close to you. I mean, this is good advice, right? There is such a thing, seems to me, as a more socially effective personality. You'll be more socially effective, more effective in life, and be more successful and be happier right? If you're a little more outgoing than introverted, if you're more conscientious than lacking in conscientiousness, if you are lower in neuroticism, meaning enjoying feeling awful, than being high in neuroticism, if you're a little bit more open to new experience than being closed to new experience, right? There, there are personality traits and, and people usually do become happier when they move out of isolation towards more connection that you always go to the funeral. And he forcefully reminds you that once you subtract the hours you spend working and sleeping and eating and watching Netflix, you have only a quarter of the year left to create memories. Itzler told the salespeople that when he looked into retirement communities for his parents, he discovered the acronym SIPS for the categories used to grade quality of life. Social, intellectual, physical, purposeful, and spiritual. So I don't know about you, but most of my most uh, profound memories are with other people, 
right? There are things that other people have said to me or things that we've done together, accomplished together, endured together, suffered together. The primary source of, of memory, of, of great memories that, that stick with you is uh, things that you've done with other people. He went on, nowhere in those criteria do they talk about Instagram followers, the watch you wear, the car you drive. So this, this rings true to me because obviously from the amount of YouTube live streaming I do, I don't have a normal secure attachment style. I think I'm making progress right towards that, but I have you know, an unduly anxious attachment style. I, I worry too much about what, what other people think of me and uh, whether you know certain friends are they still friends you know are they they backing off from the friendship hi and so because this is hamstrung my life i've had to meet that that need for connection some way and i've sought to do it through unhealthy ways such as seeking fame right just trying to build as large an online audience as, as possible even even at the cost of my well-being so i'd write about the most you know provocative topics such as the pornography industry or the mafia or the most salacious gossip about uh, politicians because I needed to get my need for connection filled somehow and I wasn't doing it through normal face-to-face -face ways and so when the internet came along like people like me start experiencing you know greater joy and happiness from from being online and uh, speaking with with kindred souls and and it's very easy to slip into a fantasy world online and to imagine that you are much more admired, more successful, more adroit online than, than you really are. And so like, like a lot of people who spend a great deal of time online, you know, I've, tr I've consistently over the course of my life tried to use attention to fill the hole that normal human connection would meet. And in my sex life, I've consistently pursued intensity rather than connection and intimacy. And it's not a winning formula. And so when I hear this talk about people measuring success by the number of followers, uh, I resonate with it. That that is like buoyed me up at times. It's like, wow, you know, I had 10,000, 15,000, 20,000 people reading my blog today. Therefore, I'm an important person. I'm on 60 Minutes. Therefore, I'm an important person. I'm on the cover of uh, the LA Weekly. Therefore, I'm an important person. I was doing the best I could at the time with the tools I had. I don't beat myself down for this. But if we're not getting what we need met in, in a healthy way, we will go to what look like obviously self-destructive ways. And you know, much of my performance online has been incredibly self-destructive because we have to get that need met for connection. And if we can't get it need face to face, we'll spend all sorts of time online and we we need love. We need we need to feel a part of some things. And if we don't get our needs met in healthy ways, we will we'll find, you know, unhealthy, maladaptive ways to get our needs met. He spun, his voice rising. Financial wasn't even a category. Man, that's a far cry from what I hear when I speak at conferences. People come on stage and say, do what I do and you too can be a billionaire. Really? There are 750 billionaires in the United States. There was only one in the room that afternoon. 
After Sarah Blakely sold a majority stake in Spanx two years ago, the couple's net worth surpassed a billion dollars. Itzler wears his wealth lightly, but it validates him on stage. It gives him the authority to call wealth into question. We often neglect this side, he raised his right hand, representing values, as we develop this, he raised his left hand, representing financial success. So almost all the self-help speakers have no success to speak of outside of selling self-help programs. Like Tony Robbins didn't develop a whole bunch of highly successful businesses, right? His success has been selling self-help. And for almost all self-help speakers, that's true. They don't have a background in success outside of selling self-help. So Jerry Itzler is an exception here, right? He has a solid track record of success starting and selling five companies. So that, that's one thing to be said for him as opposed to most of his peers. If you have a billion dollars and your spirit is zero, a billion times zero is zero. He said that his father, who ran a plumbing supply house, was a devoted checkers player who never let Itzler beat him until a few years ago. He was telling me, Jesse, nothing's going to come easy to you. Not even your own father is going to let you win. But if you work hard, even if it takes 55 years, you might get what you want. His voice growing husky, he observed that Dan Itzler never got rich, but he was a spiritual billionaire. Well, if, if you love something, it will come comparatively easy to you, right? I, I read a lot of books that for many people, this would be incredibly rigorous. And for me, it's the, the greatest pleasure. So it depends on your genetic and early imprinting, right? W what you're good at, right? When you're good at something, it comes relatively easy. So standing here sharing thoughts on uh, motivational speakers, right, would be a nightmare or unfathomable for many people. For me, it's relatively easy. On the other hand, things that come easy for you, you may be a great accountant, for example, would, would drive me crazy. So it's, it's not true that uh, nothing comes easy, right? If you're, if you're good at something, it will come relatively easy to you. In five minutes, Itzler had escalated from jaunty to heartfelt and carried the audience with him. For Itzler, success is not a solitary arrival at the peak, but a collective willingness to embark on an uncertain voyage. He spoke about Laser deciding to play baseball at age 12, despite having no experience. Itzler assured me, I run anything. So you've probably heard the advice, you know, do what you love and the money will follow. And for, I don't know, 2% of people, probably great advice. But what percentage of people are able to make a living doing what they love? Right, I'd say less than 5%. And then many people who are able to make a living doing what they love will find that they no longer love it once they do it for a living. Right, Doing something for a living. So if I were live streaming for a living, that would completely change my relationship to live streaming. I'd have a lot more anxiety about my numbers. I'd be much more focused on building and feeding and sustaining an audience. All right, the, the pleasure that I get with, you know, relatively little anxiety from live streaming would be completely changed if I was doing this for a living. I think I want to use by laser beforehand, and he feels like a superstar when he hears stories about himself. Where they live in suburban Atlanta, Little League is serious business, and laser was the last kid drafted after tryouts. I'm like, we're fucked, Itzler said. You're either going to get radically bullied or you can be an exceptional teammate. Laser's team parked him in left field and made it to the championship, despite his inability to hit or field. 
He was an exceptional teammate, though, and when he finally got a hit, he was mobbed. The championship game, in Itzler's telling, was a Casey-at-the-bat epic. It came down to a bases-loaded fly ball hit to Laser. If he caught it, they won. But he dropped it. The room's... <laughs> so... I came to the United States in sixth grade. I was not particularly adept at most American sports. I was usually chosen kind of in the middle when it came to choosing teams. But uh, in eighth grade, my parents moved to Washington, D.C., so my father could prepare a defense of his controversial theological views for the Seventh-day Adventist Church. I got to stay behind with friends. And outside of my parents' home, I became much more normal, much happier, much more effective in life. And part of that process... I've always sought out mentors or substitute father figures because I you know, had a particularly close relationship with my own father. And when I was at PUC for at least two of the years, I had good relations with two of my PE teachers. And one of them just took me out one day and showed me how to catch a ball with a mitt and how to hit a ball. And then I followed his instruction on the playground recess and people were just amazed at the length that I was able to hit a ball. Now, I flied out still. I, I got out. But I became much more effective at life because I was you know, willing to take instruction to uh, get, get some coaching. Well, that was offered to me, and I took it. So Dr. James Dobson had, had this advice for your kids is like, coach them up if you can. Get them some coaching because you do feel much better about yourself when you're good at something. And I, I struggled with math, all right? And I would have been much better off getting a math tutor because once I – Dedicated myself to math, you know, I started going through calculus. But if your kid struggles with something, right, get them a tutor, get, get them a coach, because life is just so much easier for me, right? I think when, when I'm good at something, I was doing something for the first time yesterday, doing all sorts of things for the first time yesterday, and it just caused me great anxiety. And, and learning to navigate my way through this particular part of life, then I'll have much more much less anxiety, and therefore I'll be much happier, much more effective, and I'll be much more useful to people. So it's hard to be free of anxiety when you're incompetent, whether it's at uh, baseball or math or English, right? Uh, competence tends to, to breed appropriately self-respect and effectiveness and popularity. Stiffened. That's not a motivational story. Yes, Itzler explained, it is. My son chose to be a participant despite not being great rather than being a spectator. If you want to have an exceptional life, you have to put yourself in exceptional situations. What Itzler didn't say was how devastating that dropped ball was. It was so painful, Sarah Blakely told me. Parents were crying, not just the children. The ball field was on Itzler's jaw. So I remember when we had those intense Black Lives Matter riots, was it May, June of 2020, uh, white, white people I, I knew said that uh, people of color tried to run them over in a car. And then Orthodox Jews I know in, in Los Angeles have had cars try to run them down or even ha had a car hit them. So when, when the news media feeds these narratives of oppression, Right, they incentivized people who are already on the edge to act out in these criminal ways. Uh, it's just absolutely frightening, not to mention deadly, to have a car try to run you down. 
logging route, so for more than a month he ran in the opposite direction. Three years later, he was still wistful. Oh, if he just could have caught the ball, what it would have done for his self-esteem. Growing up, Itzler never had much to overcome. So, yeah, when it comes to self-esteem, there is no substitute for competence. There's no substitute for knowing how to take care of yourself, how to iron a shirt, how to drive a car, right? How to do your job, right? How to ask a woman out on a date, take her out on a date, how to, you know, live within community, right? No substitute for, for confidence. And you can usually, no substitute for expertise, for competence. And you can usually purchase competence. You can usually get trained and, and become good at something if you spend a little money. He was the youngest of four children in a Jewish family in Roslyn, a suburb of New York City, and a gregarious presence from an early age. So one of the, the downsides of growing up in my home is that uh, my parents weren't particularly good at reading social cues. So I, would, I was running regularly, you know, five, six, seven miles a day, but I would only wash my hair maybe once a week because th those were the cues I got, yeah, from my father that you shouldn't wash your hair t too much. It, it was disgusting. But then when I lived apart from my family, I got much better social cues. <laughs> I learned to wash my hair every day to use deodorant. I learned how to tie a tie. I, I learned how to talk to girls. Right? I, I learned how to be you know, part of a group. Right? And I had, to, I had to get away from my parents' influence and, and uh, learn to find my way you know, with my friends and to listen to my peers. By the time Jesse was five, he was his own little rock star, his sister Jana said. At our local pool, he'd be schmoozing with the guy at the snack bar, saying hi to the tennis pros. Right, this guy is exceptional. He's extraordinary. Jesse Isler is a rock star, right? And he's got something amazing. He's got preternatural levels of self-confidence and intelligence and drive. And you're not going to take on these characteristics simply by buying or even trying to the best of your ability to follow his program. Some people will get some benefit or make you know, some measure of improvement, but most self-help, you know, popular self-help books are written by people who just have extraordinary levels of self-confidence and intelligence and drive, and you're not going to be able to imbibe those traits simply by buying in their programs and following their directions. Then having lunch with the lifeguards, and everyone would be calling out, Hey, Jess! It was already clear he was never going to have a desk job. Itzler's mother, Elise, set the expectations. No swearing, no potholes on your report card, no Novocaine for fillings. She told me that when he began traveling to breakdance at 15, it seemed very strange for someone of his age, race, and religion to be breakdancing on the streets of Washington, D.C., Right. He accomplished a lot of things at an early age because he had extraordinary abilities. So I like the lefty podcast that books could kill. They have great critiques of numerous airport bestsellers, such as The Subtle Art of Not Giving a F, 48 Laws of Power, The Four-Hour Workweek, The Rules, Atomic Habits, Nudge, Simple Solution for Littering, Organ Donation, and Climate Change, The Five Love Languages, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, The Coddling of the American Mind, Men are from Mars, women are from Venus, The Secret, The Game, Outliers, Freakonomics, right? They do an excellent job of decoding, you know, this 
this uh, phenomenon of uh, self-help, which is so particularly successful in individual societies like the United States and like Australia and England. So in their Atomic Habits episode, right, co-host Michael Hobbs says, this is the fundamental tension of all self-help books. There's very little advice you can give to everyone, and it's all been said before. His co-host Peter Shamshiri adds, I say it's pseudoscientific because there's no science. He cites to back it up. What he cites here is a tweet. It is one of several citations to tweets. The tweet is one tweet in a tweet thread about other stuff. There are citations to tweets and Reddit posts throughout the book. And Hobbes adds, you can't debunk these things. It's not clear that they are true or untrue. They are just a way of looking at things. He's speculating. You're just saying it. Where's the science? What's the explanation? That helps you great, but it's not scientific. It's not generalizable. So motivational rise and grind books are written by people who are high functioning. They are people with a lot of energy, super extroverted. They love planning things. They love having everything neat and in order. And people like this go through the world. Why can't everyone just do what I'm doing? Well, people who get satisfaction from being organized are the worst people to give advice because there's a human tendency to chalk this up to my system. But this is a function of their personality, of their genes and early imprinting, something that they enjoy dedicating themselves to. You can't tell people you should enjoy doing the dishes immediately when you're done eating. So with self-help books, there's usually a tremendous paradox. They will pitch themselves as a way to organize your life, but the book itself will frequently be disorganized, chaotic, and rambling. So with regard to Atomic Habits, the book, there are pieces of useful advice, but you can only get that after sifting through unnecessary anecdotes, unsourced scientific claims, contradictions, and fabrications. Reading it was an experience similar to using social media. The end of it, I had a headache. I was tired, but I had two new habits, but it wasn't worth it. This stuff works well for some people, a little bit for others, and not for others as well. So the core problem with these things is that you cannot meaningfully help people unless you understand the specifics of their situation. So who rules? The situation rules. Itzler's father, Dan, was a tinkerer. He patented drains and faucets, but was proudest of his plans for a flying car. My dad had a secret warehouse somewhere, like Doc in Back to the Future, Itzler said. He'd come home covered in an explosion of white paint, so all you could see was his eyes. After Itzler graduated from American University in 1990, his mother urged law school, but his father let him pursue rapping. Itzler signed with Delicious Vinyl, then writing the fame of Tone Loke and Young MC, and recorded songs such as Shake It Like a White Girl. She might have been snotty, but so what? The chick was a hottie. Michael Ross, a co-founder of Delicious Vinyl, said, I don't know what we were thinking having a white guy singing Shake It Like a White Girl. It was frat rap. It yeah, so this guy has has a long life history of successfully selling schlock. And I'm sure there's some good good stuff in, in what he's selling now. But uh, people usually don't change very much, all right? So as he came of age, he was selling schlock, and he's been selling schlock for a long time. He was telling a lot of lies to build up his business. Uh, sometimes this is a winning strategy, sometimes not so much. It was good frat rap, but to be honest... I'm not even sure that's a thing. Itzler spent his 20s in music, and in 1997, when he was 29, he and a partner sold a sports jingle company they'd founded for $16 million. He then co-founded Marquee Jet, which offered the equivalent of timeshares in private aviation for $109,000. His charm beguiled celebrities. He assured Jennifer Lopez that Marquis owned the 600 planes that the company actually leased from NetJets. It was just more convenient to say it that way. He 
Right. So you can take his program, but you probably won't learn to charm and BS as effectively as this guy does. Explains, adding that he quit hustling after NetJets purchased Marquee in 2010. In my 20s, I was working from a place of need, he said. If you told me it snowed, I'd say, I shovel driveways. Now I'd say, here's the number of the guy who does my driveway. Right. So this is normal. All right. With, with men. Trying to think of the Alison Armstrong did an excellent talk I heard, The Seasons of a Man's Life. But usually people, not just men, as we get older, we tend to become more secure, uh, less anxious, uh, less neurotic, more agreeable, and uh, less driven. So Dennis Prager, when he would go speak, would carry boxes of his own books to sell. And my father, would, would, when he would go speak for until into his 50s, he would carry around you know, boxes of his books to, to sell. And that was a big way of how my father paid the bills. But once you get into your 50s, right, you're less likely to lug around books to sell. You're less likely to you know, go to the extreme lengths for success that you did when, when you're younger. And also, as men get older, they tend to have more and more of a need to be acknowledged for their accomplishments. And that's why so many secretaries will end up having affairs and marrying their boss, because the man is looking for respect and admiration and even adulation for what he's accomplished. And his wife has been with him for 25 years. All right, She's not providing it because she, she knows his anxieties. She knows his weaknesses. She knows how he's struggled. And some woman who doesn't know him nearly as well all right, he can present a much more successful front to her. Right, they get married, and then very quickly she, you know, gets to know the flawed nature of the man that she married, and the excitement uh, fades. So people who divorce once, they're very likely to divorce the second, the third, the fourth time. He and Blakely met in 2006 at a poker tournament hosted by NetJets. I feel like our inner eight-year-olds fell in love first. She told me. That's where we connected the deepest, at the, oh boy, this is so awesome level. They were well matched in curiosity, intensity, humor, and passion for human potential. Blakely's parents separated when she was 15, and as her father left the house, he gave her a six-cassette set of Wayne Dyer tapes, How to Be a No-Limit Person. She memorized them, and later visualized appearing on Oprah a decade before it happened. My dad, yeah, my dad visualized appearing on the Phil Donahue show at all sorts of uh, other shows, and uh, it, it never happened. So for everyone who, who visualizes appearing on Oprah, I'm sure there are probably 100 people where it doesn't come true for everyone. It does. Uh, Josh Randall says, I hate all these books. See most of my comments not appearing on the screen. Later, guys, let me know if you intend to move over to Rumble. Well, I am live on Rumble. I'm live on kick.com. We do see your comments, but when... One does not see one's own comments. One will tend to conclude that that's how it is for everybody. But often things that we don't see, other people do see. So things, our comments don't seem real unless we can see them. But uh, if other people can, can see them, right, it's not, not necessarily so satisfying. Uh, it, it just like, what the hell? What the heck? What's going on here? What am I dealing with? My, my comments aren't showing up. But uh, in all likelihood, your comments are, are showing up. Yeah, Jared Taylor appeared on Donahue. But uh, my dear old dad never got to see that. So that was one thing that my father and I often did together in the afternoon is if there was a particularly good episode of Donahue, we'd watch it together. Does Luke uh, visualize appearing on Tucker's new network? I do, actually. 
So Tucker Carlson is launching a new network. And yeah, it does flip through my mind. I like Tucker and I have serious reservations about much of what Tucker says and does. So I, I like Tucker. He's, everyone who's met him, uh, spent time with him, tends to like him. He's incredibly likable because he's just so open, so enthusiastic, uh, so willing to go there. He's got you know, not a huge uh, filter. He's not terribly inhibited. He's you know, unlike most people who get on TV and then they become incredibly inhibited so they don't jeopardize that which is most important to you. Tucker is incredibly likable. And so, yeah, I have fantasized about getting on Tucker's network. Can anyone but the one who posts the comments know all are getting through? Has Tucker done a piece on the mostly peaceful boarding process for the 9-11 hijackers yet? Something that uh, Tucker should do. Uh, one thing I notice about Tucker's appearance on Megyn Kelly is how confident he appears. And that's the other thing that has struck me since Tucker Carlson's firing from uh, Fox News is that he still seems you know, incredibly... Uh, fired up. He, he still seems like at the top of his game. And, uh, and and most people, I think, in that situation, right, they would be, they would they would feel diminished, right? It, it's hard after a serious setback, and he doesn't have a ton of independent money. It's tough after a serious setback like that to maintain the, the same level of enthusiasm. Are you are you still working there? Are you still getting a paycheck? Well, I never, the thing is, I mean, I'm not, of course I'm not working there, um, but I didn't violate my contract and no one ever claimed that I did, um, which, and you know, it's so hard to know where the, you know, I don't read, you can ask my producer, Justin, if I've, I don't think I've ever read anything about myself, like anything. I know. At I all, know. not one that's, word. That's how you I know stay who sane. I am and I don't, well, yeah, and I care about what my family and friends think and that's kind of it. So I don't really know what they said about me, but I kept hearing, you know, oh, they're saying you're a so by launching his own media empire, his own streaming service where you can subscribe at $9 a month, uh, Tucker is, can keep that going while simultaneously placing himself in line to become Donald Trump's vice president and then be president of the United States, right? I, I would put the odds of Tucker Carlson becoming president at 1 in 20. I think there's probably a 5% chance he'll become president or probably a 10% chance he'll become uh, Donald Trump's vice president. and if he had a nightly show on Fox, right, he'd have to quit that show because of various regulations if he was seriously considering running for president. But if he's got his own media network online, he doesn't have to quit that. Racist because of your text messages or whatever. Well, there were no racist texts. I'm actually not a racist. So they didn't find I'm not having an affair. I don't have a secret drug problem or whatever. And so, I, you know, that I don't. But it's hard to know exactly how that made it into the press so no it's not um, it's not hard at all uh if you'll forgive me it's very <laughs> well, clear we, we 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 have our suspicions don't we <laughs> we do yeah, the yeah. Audience talking about the fox uh, pr lady irena briganti who tries to keep the fox stars and ex-fox stars in their place by leaking negative stories about them but also, well I would say but, that. So, but what, well, I'm trying the, to get the, to like, how did it ever resolve? Because they canceled the show, but they didn't fire oh, you because oh, they wanted you to I'm stay so in limbo. Discursive. 
Right. So this is what it's like to have dinner with me. We can never stay on a topic. Um, I beg your pardon. <laughs> you asked a direct question. I'll give you a direct answer. I didn't violate my contract. I'm not working there, obviously. Um, but I did not violate my contract, so there was no, there were no grounds to end my contract. So, so there you go. Contract but their plan was clearly but to my- keep you under the thumb for the next, you know, throughout the election cycle. And then when your deal expired post November of 24 to say, okay, now you're free. And usually right. people at Fox will take that deal because they need the money. Now you don't really need the money and you've never really. Okay. I have to listen to all of this Megan Kelly interview with, with Tucker Carlson and pull out the highlights. All right. Let me, let me get some more from this New Yorker profile on motivational speakers of who does what because the wheels were coming off jesse's column was play with the kids hitzler sheepishly acknowledges i thought sneakers and doctor's appointments just magically happened when he saw all that i was doing he got tears in his eyes and said let's go through your column and i'll do all the ones you feel comfortable having me do she added with a smile but it's still an ongoing conversation we have twice a year when Itzler was starting his career, motivational speakers were avuncular figures. Bowtied Zig Ziglar, folksy, pious Norman Vincent Peale. By the time he became a motivator, the industry had transformed in tandem with its embodiment, the raspy, six-foot-seven, astonishingly confident Tony Robbins. Robbins began his work 46 years ago by encouraging clients to walk barefoot across glowing coals. Anyone could do it if they moved briskly, Coals are relatively poor conductors of heat. But it made you feel invincible. He now gets a minimum of $500,000 to speak and charges personal coaching clients a million dollars a year, plus a cut of their profits. But he is best known for his events, such as the lavishly produced Unleash the Power Within, which promises four days of completely rewiring your nervous system to attract overwhelming abundance in every area of your life. Okay, so there there are reasons to be quite skeptical of uh, what Tony Robbins says. Just uh, re- read various decodings and debunkings of him online. Robbins popularized the belief that the mind follows where the body leads. In between his curative interventions, he has the audience jump and clap and sway and shout along, harmonizing their systems with his. I burn 11,300 calories a day on stage, Robbins told me. They measured my bone density, and I'm stronger than 99.9% of the population, and I have the lean body mass of alignment. What happens in my body and in the audiences, because everything in their bodies matches mine down to the heartbeats, is that testosterone surges through the roof. So now you're so focused that you retain whatever you're learning. Yeah, count count me skeptical. And I've seen linemen, often with quite bulging bellies. I doubt that uh, offensive linemen or defensive linemen well offensive linemen tend to have bellies defensive linemen tend not to i doubt that uh, i'm skeptical of uh, tony's claims here in the robbins era the leading motivators tend to be former division one decathletes or jujitsu black belts who post on instagram about hitting the gym at 4:32 a.m workouts increase discipline and energy produce measurable improvements and make you look ripped Fitness also lends itself powerfully to analogy. Yeah, so if, uh, you know, picking something up and, you know, w- walking through life and, and you can do it while you're fit and you feel good in your body, yeah, I'd expect that you'd be happier and, and more effective. On the other hand, 
the way most people go about trying to achieve fitness is that they just ingrain bad habits of unnecessary tension and compression ever more deeply into their bodies so that frequently they're doing themselves more harm than good. So many of these uh, motivational speakers and self-help gurus, they talk about achieving your goals. Often, right, the means by which you pursue your goals, including fitness, are more important than the goal itself, right? If uh, running a marathon does permanent damage to your body, right, it's not a good idea to run marathons. If training and running a marathon does uh, damage to important relationships in your life, right, it may not be worth uh, running a marathon. If you have to be on crutches or your you know, physical activity has to be restricted for the rest of your life because you so abused yourself while running, running a marathon, then the ends of uh, running that marathon obviously outweigh the benefits. Heavy weights aren't a burden. They're a way to get stronger. Itzler has no patience for motivators whose message is, be young and buff like me. He says he wouldn't have had anything to tell people before he'd had failures and successes as an entrepreneur. Before he got married and had kids. Before he built a repository of wisdom. Yet built a repository of wisdom. So who do you think has more wisdom? Like Jerry, Jesse Itzler, the, the individual or some tradition that's been around for hundreds or thousands of years that many wise people have contributed to. Uh, Larry asks in the stream, does this stream bring back the friendships and family you lost because of your political ideology? I didn't lose any relationships with uh, family uh, over my political ideology. I don't recall losing any relationships with friends over my politics. The one time I do recall losing virtually all my friends in Los Angeles was because I was writing about Dennis Prager on, on a blog and sometimes critical things, right? Probably even proportion of positive and critical things. But because I did this against uh, Dennis Prager's will, like everyone chose the strong horse. Everyone chose the more powerful and prestigious guy. And so I lost all the friends that I had in common with Dennis Prager, which were virtually all the friends I had in Los Angeles at that time. So we're talking about the end of 1997, early 1998. That was a difficult time for me. I remember playing uh, touch football and I, I fell and cracked a, cracked a bone in my wrist. I had to go in for surgery. So I went in for surgery and I had a panic attack coming out of surgery because I just felt so alone in life. And they kept me in overnight. And then they didn't want to release me because I didn't have anyone to come pick me up from the hospital. So I eventually got, got, a, uh, got a taxi home, went home, and uh, then went to the pharmacist to pick up pain medication. And when I was in line with the pharmacist, this gypsy says, oh, I got a special feeling about you. So I end up visiting her and dropping about $1,000 in total in my half dozen visits to her as you know, she, she you know, promised you know, all these things that I was missing in my life, such as a connection with my friends. She, she promised to heal them. Uh, it didn't work out. His obsession with fitness led him into the field, and it defines his brand. But because I was vulnerable, all right, that's why I ended up going to see the gypsy. And similar with many people who buy these self-help programs, all right, they're coming from a place of great vulnerability. If you're coming from a place of it's a rational need to increase your levels of effectiveness and motivation because you have an extraordinarily demanding job, then it makes you know, good sense to check out these programs. But if you're just coming from a place of vulnerability and need, like I was back in 1997, 98, not such a good idea. 
He first saw David Goggins, a retired Navy SEAL, at a 24-hour relay race in 2005. Itzler was part of a five-man team. Goggins was running alone, fueled only by protein powder and a box of crackers. They stayed in touch, and in 2010, Itzler invited Goggins to live with his family for a month and train him. Blakely said, You know how, in fourth grade, you'd write someone a note saying, Do you want to be my friend? Check the box, yes or no. Jesse is still doing that. Goggins, who later set the world record for consecutive pull-ups, believes we are driven by anger and fear. His motto is, Stay hard, and he views men as either savages or pussies. Some of you are so weak, he observes in one of his videos. Just being in your very presence can make a man go impotent. Right, stay hard is a good advice for some parts of life, but uh, being soft is you know, a better position for other parts of your life. It's not like staying hard or staying angry is some magic key for successful living. He trained Itzler by waking him at 4 a.m. with a whispered, Get up, motherfucker to do pull-ups, to exhaustion, or run ten miles or plunge into a freezing lake. By the end of the month, as Goggins had predicted, Itzler could do a thousand push-ups in a day. In 2015, Itzler published a book about the experience, Living with a Seal, 31 Days Training with the Toughest Man on the Planet, which became a Times bestseller. After and uh, Larry says, I bet you either have a connection with Steve Bannon or Roger Stone. Well, the most important connections I have, I don't talk about. Right, there, there needs to be you know, a realm of uh, privacy and keep things, you know, sacred. So that which is most important to me is uh, least likely to be explicitly discussed on the show. Am I an American citizen? Yes, I am an American citizen. I became a citizen in something like 1991. Afterward, an old friend in finance asked Itzler to share what he'd learned with his sales team. Itzler discovered that he could inspire people and that it made him proud. Within three years, he was at Marlins Park in Miami speaking to 36,000 people. Living with a seal doesn't mention that Goggins stayed with the Itzlers on and off for six years. In 2017, the two men had a falling out that left Itzler disappointed on where we ended up after so many years. He couldn't go into specifics, and Goggins declined to speak to me. Right, so people can come into our life for, for a time, and they can uh, be good for us at a certain time, but uh, it, it's very sad when people come into our life, play an important role, but then move on from your life. I've, I've experienced this countless times. It makes me very sad, but it does seem to be an inevitable part of life if you change and grow. Dennis Prager says he's never lost a friend, so either... I conclude that his memory is somewhat hazy or he's never substantially changed, all right? As soon as you start differing from your friends, you're placing that friendship in peril. And, and the more dramatic, the more important the difference is, the more peril that relationship is built on, right? There's something called balance theory. The more you have in common with people, the more likely you are to stay aligned with them. So if you're someone who changes and grows, you're inevitably going to shed friends along the way, which is sad. But I think the only alternative is to never change and to never grow. So I assume Dave Goggins was good for Jesse Itzler at one portion of his life and then became bad for him at a different part of his life. Chris Howth, a former Olympic swimmer who is Itzler's mindset coach, said that for Itzler, training with Goggins 
was the defibrillator paddles that shocked him so completely they flipped him upside down. But I think he saw that anger and fear and constant yelling is not who he really is. To many rudderless men who feel at sea, toxic masculinity seems like a safe harbor. I remember when I used to work out in, in my teens and early 20s, there was a lot of negative energy that was fueling me, right? A lot of hatred and envy and desire for dominance and vengeance. Like, all right, okay, another, another 10 pull-ups, and it would be hatred that would fuel me. And uh, I guess there's a time and a place for that. Usually not the best fuel. I don't, I don't feel that anymore, or not to the same degree of intensity. Ed Milet, a prominent speaker, told me, the easiest lane to get big right now is right-wing politics and hyper-masculinity. Show them your Lambo, show them your mansion, show them your muscles, and scream at them. Though 75% of the life coaches in North America are female, women are vastly underrepresented among the best-paid motivators. Of the seven speakers on the poster for the forward event, six were men. I am so often the token female at these dude events, Jen Gottlieb, a podcaster and speaker, told me. Itzler's masculinity is relatively evolved, but he does dwell on grievance. Ah, evolved meaning more liberal, right? It's not like uh, evolved and, and more liberal is just inherently a better thing, right? There, there are different hero systems, and uh, a traditional hero system has many advantages, and the new modern liberal left uh, hero system has its own advantages. But there, there are probably very good reasons why men tend to dominate certain areas of life, just like women tend to dominate other areas of life. And uh, Ashkenazi Jews dominate some areas of life, and West Africans dominate other areas of life, and East Asians dominate other areas of life, because different people have different gifts. And so this is just part of reality and maturing, just uh, recognizing that uh, different people have different gifts. So we should not be surprised when one group dominates. It doesn't have to be for nefarious reasons. When a lone detractor called him pampered in a reply to Itzler's Instagram post about an ultraman, perhaps because he'd brought a team of six to film, hydrate, and theragun him, Itzler groused about it for weeks. I will never forget that. But he Right. Why did he grouse about it for weeks? Because it rang true to him. He realized he was pampered. And uh, he achieved a certain goal, and he thought that because uh, he achieved a certain goal, that was a substantial part of his self-esteem, but he only achieved that goal because he was pampered. He did bring along a big team to, to help him. So when we're called by our true name, such as pampered, we usually recognize it, right? When, when people say something that bothers us, it's because it touches on a truth, right? If it's completely disconnected from truth, it's not going to bother you. If you, someone told me I was illiterate, right, that would not bother me. If uh, someone told me that I should go read a book, right, that would not bother me because those accusations are not you know, touching on my core insecurities. Generally uses grudges as fuel for the next race, then discards them like an empty bottle of muscle milk. Something must have happened in my childhood where I thought I had something to prove, he told me. I'd have to spend a lot of time on the couch to figure it out. Any plans to? Nope. In 2019, Itzler sought out another ex-Navy SEAL ultramarathoner, Chad Wright. A staple of Itzler's current speech is the weekend Wright spent at Itzler's house, counseling him about gratitude and about never acknowledging distress when you hit the wall. The only answer to how do you feel 
is outstanding. Well, there are many valid responses to how do you feel. And uh, complete honesty and disclosure is appropriate in a narrow number of situations and outstanding, even when it's a lie. I'm sure that that works in other situations, but uh, it's not like that's you know some kind of magic key. You can't do anything uh, publicly, right, if you're not prepared to be threatened. So we've got uh, Larry asking some tough questions here, and he says, now I know who you are. See you during Civil War 1.5. Well, who am I? I don't think America's headed for a civil war. It's a very popular talking point among many people I know. I don't think it's going to happen. I don't think it's going to come close to happening. So I'm afraid that uh, it's highly unlikely that we will meet during Civil War 1.5. Wright told me, hate and anger fueled me for eight years as a SEAL. But they're dirty fuel. Cleaner fuels like love, joy, the power of the spoken word, propel you much farther. Itzler explained, David is stay hard, and Chad is be hard when it gets hard. Both are super motivators, but it's hard to always be hard, especially when you have kids. Itzler's maxim is, I'm never too tired for my kids. He once flew home from New York to watch Laser in a 22-second breaststroke race, then flew back. His friend, Chris Paul, the NBA star, told me, half the time we talk, it's just about parenting. That's crazy. He, he flew all, all those hours just to see his kids swim. I never wanted my parents around when I was doing anything school-related. I mean, how many kids really do want their, their parents around? So I guess I'm unusual. But I, I hear this among parents all the time, boasting about how often they appear at their kids' sporting events. Do most of the kids really want that? Is it really important to their kids that their, their parents show up? For me, that would that would just be shameful and, and embarrassing. I When I was a kid, I wanted to be with other kids, with, with my peers. I didn't want my parents coming along. But I, so many Americans is it in other countries as well. It's this great point of pride, the sacrifices they make to attend every stupid sporting event that they're usually not terribly skilled children are, are performing in. I, I, obviously, I think it's a good thing for parents to be there for a child, but I don't see why attending a child's sporting event is uh, usually going to be a really important thing for the child. It it's just strikes me as completely bizarre. Itzler's children, he and Blakely have four, also provide much of his material. After a typical day at home, he told one audience, 15 lessons happened to me in 24 hours. In July, I visited Itzler and his family at their... Yeah, 15 lessons in his home life happened to him in 24 hours, and he's essentially going to sell them, right? He's going to sell off those parts of his intimate life, sell, sell his soul. And I'm sure for some people, that's a good thing because there's so much good and helpful things that come from those disclosures, but uh, not a good strategy for most people summer home in New Fairfield, Connecticut, on the shore of Candlewood Lake. It was two days before his annual Hell on the Hill fundraiser. 110 people would attempt to run up and down his nearly vertical... Okay, I'll skip this section on his various uh, athletic endeavors. And soon Itzler was eyeing the lake, which was a third of a mile wide. Okay, skip forward bar. ...can complete one. 
A fitting misogi could be skydiving to conquer your... Okay, let's get Itzla's program here. But if people were able to do all that, unprompted, they wouldn't need the conference at the Marriott. The consensus in the field, to the extent that there is one, is that to create new habits, you need motivation plus mindset plus a methodology. Itzler believes the best way to start that process is by building your life resume. He asks followers to fill out a wall-size, big-ass calendar, which he sells for $47. And here's another excerpt from the story that I skipped over. Itzler turns nearly everything into a game, a contest, a chance to measure it yourself. He and his wife Blakely agree that if one of their children says, I can't, they reply, Itzler's don't say that. There's no evidence that this or any particular way is a superior way of raising children. There's just absolutely no evidence. He talks, uh, the article says his home is an incubator for optimization. <laughs> and uh, he says he told his brother about my son. He's a good swimmer, but he doesn't have that eye of the tiger. My brother said, that's okay as long as he's happy. And I'm like, no, he'd be happy playing Fortnite and eating haagen every night. We want him to live up to his potential. Sounds exhausting, right? In the end, it doesn't really matter what you want for your kids. They're going to do their own thing, and they're going to be more influenced by their peers than they are by you. So your best chance for influencing your kids is by choosing where they go to school and where you live, where you worship, what kind of community you're in, right? You can predispose your children towards a particular peer group. The author says, Jerry Isler has a parental knack for infusing you with his intentions. Simply take it on faith. Those intentions will behoove you. Well, sometimes they will and sometimes they won't. In general, you don't want to put your life in the hands of strangers. Schedule in many adventures every two months. Build a winning habit, such as cutting out added sugar every quarter. And most important, frame your year around a misogi. In Japanese, the word describes a purification ritual. But in Itzler's parlance, a misogi is a daunting challenge that forces growth. A marathon is too easy. Almost everyone who trains can complete one. A fitting misogi could be skydiving to conquer your fear of heights, completing a triathlon, or repairing a relationship with an estranged parent. Itzler began setting life goals in his mid-twenties. Be a millionaire by 30. Have a song and a movie. Run a marathon. Check, check, check. He asked successful people for their most powerful habits and began eating only fruit before noon and spending three hours a day on his own development. Right, there's no evidence that eating only fruit before noon is a good way to live. And uh, those three hours a day on personal development, all right, there'd be more, many benefits to spending those three hours a day with family, friends, community, your religion, uh, a charity, your profession, your education. When he doesn't understand something, such as how to read a complex balance sheet, I feel super small versus any other area where I feel super big, he said. At 50, he drafted a list of skills to acquire, and he's since hired experts to teach him how to improve his memory, decipher body language, ride a motorcycle, free dive, and perform CPR. It's like the Bourne movies, where Jason Bourne knows all the languages, spy tricks, how to fight, he said. The more I can layer into my toolbox, the more unstoppable I become. And the byproduct is separation from everybody else in my space. He studies other speakers, Constantly comparing, tweaking, seeking to improve. He told me, I want to make someone feel bad they came before me and terrible they went after me. 
His peers are no less competitive. The motivator, Erwin McManus, told me, I was in a room full of great speakers recently, and they were all asking each other, who's the greatest communicator in the world? I said, maybe the question should instead be, what do people most need to hear? McManus, who coaches other speakers, rates his clients on a personality test called the Berkman Method. They're all in the 90s out of 100, where the higher the number, the more you're affected by how other people perceive you, he said. They all have a deep conviction that their message is the most important one, and that message so often is, don't care what other people think about you. Itzler disparages the measures of success in his industry, griping that you have to pay up to $10,000 to be included on certain lists of top coaches. And they Look, there's no way of getting around caring about what other people think of you, right? That, that's normal, natural, and healthy, but you can care about how other people think about you in an adaptive way or in a maladaptive way, right? You use comparison for connection, to connect with people, to maintain and develop the most important relations in your life and for information, if you notice other people are doing things more effectively, more, more quickly th than you are, then you compare yourself to them. If they're, they're particularly successful in an area, you learn from them, All right? So that's an adaptive way of comparing yourself with others. Then there's a maladaptive way where you just feel terrible about yourself or you, you know, become filled with rage and resentment. But there's no way of graduating from caring about what other people think of you that numerous colleagues claim they have the top-rated podcast or bring in a hundred million dollars, all this uncheckable hype. But he still wants to reach the top. Once when we were discussing his coaching program, he laughed and said, the bitterness you hear is that I haven't been able to crack the code and get to a higher level. He launches new offerings by following his gut. Four years ago, Jesse asked me, do you want to be a coach for my calendar club? Lori Wintonick, who now runs his coaching programs, told me. I said, what does it entail? And Jesse said, I have no idea. He's totally ready, fire, aim. When Itzler and Wintonick met recently to discuss revamping their programs for next year, Itzler declared, this industry is built on predatory advertising that tells you your life is broken. If you feel you haven't lived up to your potential, which is everyone, the only way to achieve that is to take my $99 program and I'll teach you how to get a private jet. To promise someone a free webinar and then bombard them with emails for all these other products, that's horseshit. Wintnick interrupted to point out that their media team sends a flood of emails too. Itzler looked stricken. Right. Well, what are the chances that he can uh, reform what is, in essence, a predatory industry? Right. When you swim with sharks, right, it usually doesn't uh, turn out well for you. Right. This is essentially a predatory industry that uh, provides a valuable service to some people, but destroys other people and then just sucks, you know, hundreds and thousands of dollars out of very vulnerable people who can ill afford it. If you like that, we also have this is completely different from we're offering this free webinar only so we can upsell you into our $997 program, he protested. Whatever conventional wisdom recommends, Itzler is inclined to reject. One of his webinars is called Normal is Broken. Normal, he points out, is overweight, divorced, and depressed. Yet, in his efforts at outreach, he often finds himself on well-trodden ground. He has a full-time staffer who shoots video of him and posts clips on YouTube, TikTok, and Instagram. And he currently has an online calendar club, $1,000, 
the Elite 365 program, which provides... So what percentage of people who are in these expensive clubs that he's offering do you think are getting, getting their money's worth? It's a good deal for. Uh, a lot of questions about who am I associated with politically. Most of my friends are philosophers or philosophically inclined, right? Very few of my friends are political activists. I'm not uh, particularly interested in activism. I, I would bring discredit on any cause that I, I endorse. So I am much more comfortable hanging out with those who analyze the world rather than those who uh, try to change the world. Provides coaching in such categories as business, nutrition, intermittent fasting, parenting, and mindset, as well as quarterly calls and two retreats with Itzler, $35,000. And the Premier 365 program, which offers even more coaching in FaceTime, $75,000. Robbins doesn't believe that his industry needs an overhaul. I love Jesse to death, he told me. But it's unrealistic to think we're going to make people do something he wants in a world where they have free choice. The best will rise to the top and the weakest will fall to the bottom. The clients of Itzler's I spoke to are also satisfied with the status quo. His retention rate is about 70%, well above the industry norm. Stephen Odom, a CEO who's in Premier 365, told me, How do you put a value on me calling my dad from Jesse's house and telling him I loved him and why he's such a great dad and having him tell me that nothing I could ever have said would be worth more than that? Between myself and my company, I've probably spent close to a million dollars on Jesse, and I will spend more. Another of Itzler's devotees, Risa Costas, a stylist and personal shopper, has been in his calendar club for three years. She'd love to level up, but his masterminds aren't cheap. I pick up a lot from Jesse's Instagram, Costas said. It's like Taylor Swift fans listening to her from the parking lot because they can't afford a ticket. And uh, so comments here about uh, Steve Bannon and uh, Roger Stone, another political activist. Uh, these are guys who optimize for activism. and. Part of what they do, to quote Steve Bannon, is flood the zone with shit. Right? I am not optimized for activism. I strive to optimize for seeking the truth, acknowledging the truth. Right? That, that's my number one priority. Itzler knows that his value rises with proximity, as the experience nears personal coaching. He's particularly excited about next year's quarterly sweat lodge retreats at a 500-acre property he owns in northern Georgia, where people can spend three days with him meditating, hiking, biking, taking sound baths and saunas, and chilling out. It's loosey-goosey, he told Wintnick. I can do a fireside chat at night. We should add that. Or get in the sauna with people. So I'm not an activist, but I also don't share those who want to completely detach from politics. I think it's good to be involved in your community and in politics, but uh, it should usually not be the overriding passion in your life. So if you want to know my opinion, I think a moderate interest and uh, activity level in your community and in, in politics is, is probably a good thing for, for many people. So I often you know, encounter people through these live streams who are just you know, all gung-ho for Donald Trump then Donald Trump does something, disappoints them, and they vow they'll never care about politics again. So I would recommend a middle path between those two extremes, recognizing that one's ability to change the world is extremely limited, but we can have an influence on the people around us. We can make a small, small, tiny difference in what's going on. 
in our community and in broader society, but we can make a tremendous difference, a gargantuan difference, a huge difference in the lives of certain individuals. And that ability to to be helpful to people that we see and know in, in real life is more important for most people than political activism. That's where I shine, where I make them feel they can do more. Yet he also understands that the real money lies in galvanizing thousands of people at once. He went on to lay out a plan of ten webinars to stock a digital library that will allow him to earn while I sleep. Then he... Larry says you can't regurgitate right stream media in a public forum and also be an observer. Yes, I can, because I am primarily here decoding what's going on beneath the partisan rhetoric, right? beneath the, the platitudes beneath the self-serving talk, what's, what's really going on here. So I am not a general in Trump's army. I would uh, prefer Donald Trump as president to Joe Biden. But in, in all likelihood, it will make no difference to the lives of ordinary Americans 99% of the time, whether it's Trump or Biden who's in office, right? Whether it's George W. Bush or Al Gore or John Kerry or Barack Obama or John McCain or Mitt Romney or Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump, 99% of the time, right, most Americans' lives would not be affected by whoever becomes president. He pivoted to an even more commercial idea. Jesse Itzler Live, a speaking tour to establish him nationwide. We'd start at The Beacon in New York, off-Broadway theater or comedy room, that kind of vibe, intimate. It's $49 to get in, up to $500 for VIP with an after-party. Day two, we offer everyone a run and then smoothie bowls, cold plunge, sauna, and a two-hour immersion course where I'll have some kind of curriculum, and that could be a 1000 or $1,500 additional. So I know a lot of people are into these optimizers like Andrew Huberman, and uh, I, I take cold showers. Like, I think that, that's great, and uh, I love smoothies, right? but these things are not going to transform your life. Right? And Andrew Huberman is just a terrible guide to health, right? He hasn't once advocated the COVID vaccine for which there is a mountain of evidence, but he you know, regularly advocates for all sorts of practices such as forest bathing for which there's you know, virtually no evidence. And at the same time, he likes to wrap himself in the mantle of science. As a Stanford University professor, he's all about the science. Well, it's a con. Year two? I'd change the speech and hopefully triple the size of the venues. He nodded, visualizing. You three? Arenas. Google plans to introduce an AI life coach, but its experts recently cautioned that users could experience diminished health and well-being and loss of agency if they took advice from an algorithm. Oh, and, and they wouldn't experience those things taking advice from secular gurus, from self-help gurus, from motivational speakers from people who are trying to sell them courses, right? I'm sure there are downsides to the AI self-help guru, just as there are considerable downsides to many of the self-help gurus who are real, live, actual, living, breathing people. All right, that'll do it for now. Take care, guys. Bye-bye.